So I guess we should check. It sounds like you should be able to hear me pretty easily, yeah? Mm. You know, there's something always so sweet about the last night of the retreat. And I look around the room and I see faces of people that I've interacted with one way or another. Some of you I've had fairly long conversations with and some not at all, but we've been in this together for the week. And I don't know, how about we just take over next week and we stay, you know, we'll have a little, we'll have a little meditate in. <laughs> what? It says strike, a meditation strike. There you go. Well, probably won't happen, but you know, one of the things that does happen is people keep cropping up year after year, one retreat or another, sometimes with some long intervals. There are a few people in this room that hadn't seen for years, and now here they are. So, such a good thing, this Dharma family, you know, that we have. And it's kind of interesting, that's where my mind went, because I really want to talk the title of this talk is The Luminous Web of Being. So here we've been all week. We've been hanging out with the body, doing our very best to be intimate with our bodies. Really going in. You know, probably some of us never thought much about being intimate with our liver before or intimate with your bile. <laughs> or maybe sometimes you've been too intimate with it, I don't know. But <sighs> And of course you go, we go in and it's like there's this whole universe in there, right? There's so much going on. We've talked about that so much and it's all working away and producing things and sustaining this event that calls itself you. And it's like there's a whole universe inwardly. And there is an old piece of perennial wisdom that says, as above, so below. So, you know, out there and in here, pretty similar. So we are each a vast universe. You are a vast universe. And we inhabit a vast universe. So there's a woman that whose writings I've been following a little bit lately. Her name is Barbara Brown Taylor. She's actually an Episcopal priest. And she says, whatever language you prefer, the apparent truth is that we belong to a web of creation in which nothing, absolutely nothing, is inconsequential. Nothing, absolutely nothing, is inconsequential. So more and more in my own practice over the years, some of you have heard me talking about it. Is this still working? It's, it's being a little wonky. It keeps sliding around. Um, I've had this desire to look at the big picture, you know. I've gotten really interested in astronomy and what little bit of astrophysics I can understand. Fortunately, I'm married to a scientist, so he helps out here and there. And so, you know, the bigger the better, as far as I'm concerned. 
which is kind of interesting because, of course, I'm shrinking, right? I'm shrinking, literally shrinking in terms of height, you know, shorter. And, of course, as we've mentioned in here several times, there's that sense as we age that our lifespan is shortening, you know, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. So I'm really drawn to ponder, like, what does it mean to live in such a vast universe with its trillions? You know, we used to think millions, but forget millions. Trillions of stars and galaxies and planets. We have no idea, really, how many at this point. And then, as I said, to inhabit this body, which does indeed seem to mirror the macrocosm. We know that all of the world's great religions emerged during a relatively short period of time, actually. So it started with the Buddha, and of course he emerged into a world that was rich with Hindu practice and imagery and mythology. There was Confucius, there was Lao Tzu, there was Jesus, there was Muhammad. And then it stopped, it seemed like. And uh, so this enormous arrival of these great wisdom figures and teachers. And at that point, pretty much everyone had the notion that the earth was flat. Although there were some exceptions, the Arabs and the Chinese, some, some seemed to have had some clue that that was not true. And most had the idea that the, there was a three-tier cosmology. So you had heaven above, where if, there, if you have deities in your particular tradition, that's where they are. And then you have earth in the middle, and then you know what's down there, it's not, it's not so good. Even the Buddhists have a hell, you know. So another writer says, nearly all formal religious traditions embody imperial sentiment, a derogatory view of creation, and a distinctly male patriarchal bias. So that's all of these religions that came at that time. It's been true. And so this is how it was, and our theologies and philosophies and cosmologies reflected these views. And um, of course, you all know, sitting in this room, I, I mean, it's possible that there's people in here who still think that the earth is flat. I did have occasion to ride here, here from the airport once with a driver who was absolutely tried really hard to try to persuade me that the earth was flat. He didn't succeed. But for the most part, science has shown us, astronomy has shown us that this is not true. And um, so we have, we've come to some very, very different conclusions about the nature of the cosmos. But the problem is, not all of the rest of our thinking has. And so our thinking has stayed kind of small, and we are obsessed with divisions of territory and race and politics and gender and religion. And there's probably a few more things that I didn't think to put in there. 
So it's not a big view. It's not a big view at all. So as you know, I live on the big island of Hawaii. And um, that's the one with the volcano that you were reading about a lot a year ago. And I actually live at the summit of that volcano on the edge of the national park in Volcano Village. I put out my flyer for my sitting group, so maybe some of you will show up one of these days. And I spend some of my time in the park as a volunteer ranger, so I'm a little bit speaking with my brown suit on in that role right at the moment. So what we know about these islands is this. We know that there are hot spots on the surface of the earth, all over the earth. There's one under Yellowstone, there's one at the Canary Islands, there's one under the Hawaiian Islands. And in those hot spots, the magma from the mantle of the earth comes up fairly easily. It's almost like you could think of it as a weak spot in the earth's crust. And so it comes up and in, in of course, in the area of Hawaii, the Earth's crust is several miles under the ocean. And it, the lava flows out and it begins to build an island. And so the entire island chain has grown from that hot spot. And in fact, the island chain continues on all the way up to the Aleutian Islands, except most of those islands by now are underwater. And at that point, the, the Pacific plate dives underneath the, the um, North American plate. So any islands that were before that are gone. So the islands way up by the Aleutians are 80 million years old. And the island I live on in another 80 million years will be getting ready to dive under the North American plate. And it will be gone. So it's, you know, they're definitely forming and then dissolving. So you can see this even, you know, in our islands. As you, the further north you go, the older the islands are. Kauai is about seven million years old, and the big island is less than a million, probably about 900,000. So in this last eruption, Portions of the island that were well loved by many, many people. Some of you, I know some of you in this room have stayed there. Uh, an area that had warm ponds, it had tide pools big enough to snorkel in. They were huge, they were as big as this room. Amazing places. It had beautiful, beautiful gardens and 700 homes. And all of that was covered by many, many feet of lava. It was an enormous eruption, a surprisingly big one. And so they're gone. They're gone. And, you know, it's a little like when somebody dies. You know how gone people are when they die? It's just, it boggles the mind. And so these places that we all went and that we all loved are not available and they will never, ever be available. But that's not all. The summit caldera, which is right where I live, just a few miles from my house, collapsed. And over a four-month period, we had 80,000 earthquakes. 
we had 500 earthquakes a day. And of that 500, you could feel about mm, 50 or 60 usually. And they would start small, and then they would peak at a 5.3 or a 5.4. So you're all, a lot of you are California people, so you understand about this. And then it would stop for a while, and then it would start again. And what was happening was the summit was dropping. Ka-chunk, 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 ka-chunk. Pause. Ka-chunk, 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 like that. Dropped 1,600 feet. So amazing, you know, amazing. You can't live there without getting the truth that this earth, our home, this so-called solid, stable ground is not. Absolutely is not. It's not solid, it's not stable, and it's still being created. We have acres of new land also because of that eruption. The island got bigger towards the, a little bit towards the south and the west. So we know, you know, the continents are moving around and the mountains are rising and falling and the ocean is coming in. And of course now it's coming in where the ocean wasn't any time recently. So, you know, it's really difficult right now with climate change. We're really looking at what we've done to exacerbate that. But a lot of this is, has also been happening for the entire time that the planet has been here with um, geological change. But nonetheless, climate change is, is going to make it faster and we're going to probably forget New Orleans and quite a bit of Manhattan and a good bit of downtown Hilo, where I live, or near where I live. So with all this going on, it becomes really pretty difficult to hold on to this flat earth cosmology where everything is fixed. And you know, Buddhism, Buddhist teaching, has long had a cosmology that actually understood that um, something had been happening for a long, long time, eons of time, many lifetimes, and even other worlds. Um, And yet still, I think even in this Buddhist world, there's a lot to be learned from the new cosmology. And what's really exciting is we're not the only ones looking, because what seems to be happening is that people from all different religious traditions are taking our new scientific understanding and saying, you know, I think we better rethink some of our ideas. It's usually the folks who are already pretty mystical. They have this wide view anyway. So one theologian says that God has been incarnating God's self ever since the Big Bang and is completely interwoven with all of creation. Try that one on, huh? completely interwoven with all of creation. Now this is rattling more than a few cages in some of these other religious denominations, but most of us Buddhists, we like this one a lot. And um, so here we are, we're human beings, we're inhabiting this changing planet that's floating around in vast, vast space. And as I said earlier, We've been also paying attention to our bodies. Also vast space. So much going on. Remember, 
Bob's poem, I should get a copy of that actually, about all the functions that he read last night, all the, what were they, 110? 110 functions, and she probably, I, I kept thinking, I think there's a couple that she hasn't gotten to, so probably easily 120 or 30, that the things that the body does, does the bo blood being hustled around from one place to another, and the food being detoxified and separated into its components, and sent off to the proper storage cell facility, and cells cooperating as they do all this work, and um, there's so much going on. And not only that, of course, it's not just us. There's all the other creatures who are inhabiting our body, all those bacteria and mites and organisms who are living in and on you. If you really want a scary thing, go look at eyebrow mites someday. They're not. That's pretty frightening, and you're glad they're as small as they are. You're, as Bob said, you're a civilization. You're a civilization. There's birth and death and corpses and babies, you know, the whole, it's a human biome. And it's always changing, just like our planet, but a little faster, every seven years, you know. And, of course, we get to see that a little bit in our own being with our appearance. So, I don't know if this is a poem that I got from you, but it's the one I found today. It says... We have calcium in our bones, iron in our veins, carbon in our souls, and nitrogen in our brains. 93% stardust with souls made of flames. We are all just stars that have people names. How about that, huh? We are all just stars that have people names. I can sense already that people are going to want to see it, so I'll save it out. And Put it up on the board. <laughs> so, we know that 14 billion years ago, most cosmologists believe there was some huge event that brought everything, everything into being. Called the, we call it the Big Bang, in an instant, in this vast explosion of energy, the cosmos began. And that over millions of years, matter and energy separated out from each other and stars and galaxies and planets were formed. And then after a good bit more time, about five billion years ago, life began to happen on this planet. And then in fits and starts with lots of failures and dead ends, things moved along until human beings emerged. And of course, it's not over yet, right? It's not over yet. We like to think it is. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I can't, I'm sure I'm not the only person in the room who for a long time thought that, well, human beings are the top of the evolutionary chain. Maybe. But who knows what will happen. Maybe we'll be like the Borg. Remember the Borg? And, you know? and uh, Star Wars, or maybe we'd just be extinct. We just don't know. So we are part of that evolution. We are part of that evolution that has rolled along since the Big Bang. You are, in fact, really made out of stardust that is temporarily held together by the bounds of your body. A body 
is a one-word concept or story, as Bob was describing it last night, for what is going on for this <coughs> little evolutionary event that's happening in this moment. So it's, it's very like when you look up in the sky at night, and the sky's been really beautiful while we've been here, and you see the Pleiades, or you see the Big Dipper, or you see Orion, and you go, oh, there's Orion the hunter. Now, is there a hunter in the sky? You know, does he have a belt? No, not at all. It's just a connect the dots kind of event that we use to give some definition to what we're looking at. Or, you know, you're looking at a stream and you look down into the water and you see, oh, look, there's an eddy right there. You know, it might make a difference as to where you put in your boat or where you go swimming. So we call it an eddy, but is it an eddy? No. It's a group of rocks that happen to be there that cause the water to move in a certain way. There isn't anything solid that is an eddy, really. So in Buddhist thinking, I am getting to Buddhist thinking, we say that this event that I call me is a concept. It's just a concept. This is what this whole teaching of anatta is about that we began to talk about last night. So we often call it self. This is myself. This is my body, myself. I'm Mary Grace Orr. I, my zip code is 96785. And I have an email address and a phone number and like that. In Buddhism, we say, well, self is made up of five things. You could think of them. Actually, it's handy. I don't think this is particularly Buddhist, but you could think of them as the stones that form the eddy. In Buddhism, sometimes they're called the baskets, you know, that we gather information into. So it's form and feeling or vedana, and I'll talk about each one in just a minute, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. So all of these things, when they happen together, ta-da, you've got a human being. So form is pretty easy. We've got form. Everybody has form. Vedana is sometimes translated as feeling, but what it really means is feeling tone. So that's the sense that all experience is either pleasant or it's unpleasant or it's neither. And it seems really simple and as though, well, duh, but actually, it's the place where we really get caught most of the time because that's where attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant occurs. And also with neither, we kind of space out. So it's a place where it's very easy to stop being here. Perception is that process of perception in the moment, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, t- smelling, just be actually before those things, but it's where it begins to happen. And mental formations are the stuff that happens, the mental things that get going in your mind, that the stories, the ideas, the thinking. And then consciousness is kind of the, I think of it as the flavor of your consciousness. It's aversive, it's awake, it's asleep, that kind of thing. So it's more like that. 
So when all these happen, I knew it was falling off. Everybody hang on for just a moment. We'll see if we can make this work a little better. I think I need bigger ears or something. Okay, so out of these we create identity. And if you've ever watched a baby, you know, babies are so fabulous because they're learning about being human, right? And there comes a point when you say to a baby, who's that? And sometimes for a while the baby will just giggle and laugh. But sometimes after a while they'll say, oh, and they'll say their name, Fred, and laugh and laugh and laugh. Just like, like, I have this, I have this identity. It's such an exciting thing when you're that little. And, And then gradually, you know, any of you who've had children, you know this. You teach them their name. You've got to know their name. What's your phone number? You know, if you get stuck out there, you get lost. What's your phone number? What's your mom's name? What's your dad's name? All those kinds of things that we do to build this identity. And, and we do this, it's important. In the world of time and space, you have to have an identity. It's a good idea to have a fairly strong one with clear boundaries and to know where you begin and where you leave off. So that's great, it's handy. But of course, what happens is we get way identified. So, you know, we all, each of you, you could say, you know, I'm a teacher, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm American, I'm Hispanic, I'm African American, I'm gay or straight or neither. And of course, we all know, there's a lot of conversation about it now, what happens when the wrong story gets attached to somebody. And somebody gets told, you're a girl. And somewhere in them they go, uh, uh, uh. No, I'm not. And then there's a long struggle, often a lifetime of struggle, as they sort out trying to step out of that story because it's not one that fits for them. It's complicated, isn't it? So complicated and so difficult. They work well some, these identities, and they cause a lot of suffering. Now, just suppose all of us really took seriously this notion that this body that we've been sitting in and living in for however many years you have is actually stardust. You actually took it Seriously, just as everything in this room is, actually. And so we are all made up of particles, like the little poem said, that have made their way through this cosmos for all these billions of years. That's a long time. It's a long time. It's an unthinkable time, really. So, you know, these particles shifted, they've been glass gas clouds, they've um, been stars and they've exploded and then they've maybe been planets and maybe those, your planet got knocked out by an asteroid and you know things form and then reform and then after life begins the particles become oceans and trees and dinosaurs and fishes and Julius Caesar and Mohammed 
and your grandmother. <laughs> really? Really? And now they've collected into you. They've collected into you. You, me, this body with all of its amazing and wonderful parts. This is truly a miracle. It really, really is. But also, what if, what if somewhere in those particles there lingers just the faintest bit of some kind of memory that at one point before time and space came into being, everything was one. What if that were so? Or at the very least, what if we took it seriously? It was all one. We were all squished in or whatever with everything else that exists into they tell us the smallest of spaces, that all this division and all the separation that we see is actually all connected. My friend who writes about this calls this the unbearable wholeness of being. The unbearable wholeness of being. So that you and the rocks and the mosquitoes and the volcano and the coyotes and the turkeys and the oaks. It just goes on and on and on. We are born relational, it seems. We yearn to be connected and we yearn to be part of this whole that is everything. Joanna Macy says, in the first movement, our infancy as a species we felt no separation from the natural world around us. Trees, rocks, and plants surrounded us with living presence as intimate and pulsing as our own bodies. In that primal intimacy, we were as one with, we were as one with our world as a child in the mother's womb. So separation, attachment, clinging, ignorance, hatred, these are all the root causes of suffering. And we know that, you know that. We all know how much suffering comes when we get totally entrenched in me. I, me, and mine, mine. Or if, if we're a group, it's self and other, us and them, whoever the them is. Our world is being torn apart by tribalism, absolutely ripped apart. Racial tribalism, political tribalism, religious tribalism, national tribalism, too many to name, too many to name. And when we are tribal, we make everyone else other. They're not in our tribe. It becomes a world of opposition, of tension, of anger, and war. Over and over. 
We have huge machine-like corporations that trample everything in their path. The only thing that matters is acquisition and money. The inner world matters hardly at all. Found a quote today from Neil deGrasse Tyson, everybody's favorite astrophysicist. He says, our molecules are traceable to stars that exploded and spread these elements across the galaxy. If you see the universe as something you participate in, as this great unfolding of of a cosmic story, that, I think, should make you feel large, not small. You will never find people who truly grasp the cosmic perspective. When you have a cosmic perspective, there's this little speck called Earth and you say, you're going to what? You're on this side of a line in the sand and you want to kill people for what? Oh, to pull oil out of the ground? What? What? Not enough people in the world carry a cosmic perspective with them. It could be life-changing. And you know what? The self-other business, us and them, our tribe against their tribe, those of us who are on the progressive side of the aisle are just as guilty as everyone else. We make them them. Or we make, you know, we are good Buddhist students. We are too smart to get roped in by whatever, that religion. They are the problem. This is hugely important. It's hugely important. And this, I think, is why all of us teach here. It's why we teach here. That's because this is, this is the concern that's in the hearts and the minds of every serious seeker I know in every religious denomination. We have to get past this. We have to get past it. I've always loved the image of Aikido. Some of you who've sat with me before know this. Because in Aikido, you know, you can, you can go against somebody like this, right? Boom! And what happens? Everybody gets hurt. But in Aikido, you meet the opposing force and you move everyone to a safe place. It's a wonderful image. And it's one we need to learn how to do. So, just as my island changes and continues to be created and Ni'ihau and Kauai are eroding and sinking into the sea and what you all think of as the beautiful island of Maui where you go on vacation was actually once upon a time four islands with seven volcanoes. And that's obviously changing. So it's all changing, changing. And so are we. And all the beings on the planet are also changing. And species are dying out. And mutations are occurring. And really the question is, what can we as conscious beings, how can we work with that? Because even as we sit here right now, in this very moment, we are at the front edge of evolution. 
This is evolution happening. It's not something that you study about in school and it happened then. It's happening now. And not only is it happening, not only has it come up in the sense behind us and produced this fabulous gathering of people and this beautiful place, it's opening up in front of us. And that's the important place. Impermanence is not just about things ending. It's not just about things ending. It's not just about people and animals we love dying. It's not even just about the climate changing. It's also that it's opening up in front of us. There, you know, every moment, every second, it's opening, opening, opening. The creation is emerging. And we, as conscious beings, we as conscious beings, have the ability to wake up, have the ability to make choices, have the ability to possibly shape what happens next, at least a little bit. So this is why we sit here, in case you wondered a few times this week, which you might have. You know, we come and we sit on weeks like this, doing our best to wake up so that we can then do our best to live skillfully. It's really important. Can you feel that? I hope you can. You know, that you can feel it and that you can be with it and that you can begin to evaluate all of the choices you make in your lives. Some of them things you will change, some you won't for a wide variety of reasons. You can evaluate how you treat your body, this precious body that is also part of evolution. And you can consider how you treat other bodies, other human bodies, other animal bodies, other plant bodies, tree bodies. You know, there's lots of interesting studies being done these days about trees and plants. They're not so insentient as we thought they were. Your choices are completely part of evolution. They can't not be part. And they have reverberations. The Buddha called that karma. You have the karma of your actions. And in fact, the word karma actually just means actions. And he says at one point, this is what you leave behind you. You know, I'm of the nature to age, to sicken, to die. I'm going to lose everything. And then the Buddha says, all you have is your karma. And we know this too. We know the reverberation of the people who have gone before us. It's helpful, actually, sometimes. And sometimes it's not so helpful. So we are the inheritors of our actions, inheritors of our karma. But it's also true that the generations of people who are coming, the animals and the trees and the earth, they are also the inheritors of our actions, just as we have inherited the actions of the people who lived before us. We cannot be separate from each other. It's not possible. It's not possible.
a woman named Ju- Judy Canato, who was a visionary of the new cosmology, wrote, emergent theories seem to confirm what mystics have been telling us all along, that we are one, not just all human beings, but all creation, the entire universe. As much as we may imagine and act to the contrary, human beings are not the center of the universe, even though we are a vital part of it, nor are we completely separate from others but live only in and through a complex set of relationships we hardly notice. Interdependence and mutual connections are integral to all life. So this is so consistent with what the Buddha taught. You know, he taught that being attached to the separate self causes suffering, that Every he taught that everything is in flux, constantly arising, constantly changing. So really, you know, creation continues in its mysterious and sacred and wonderful way. And so the question really is, what would it take for us to realize that we are unfinished? We are unfinished. That we are still being formed that the universe is unfinished and it's still being formed. And maybe that, had this idea as I was writing this afternoon, maybe the idea of finished doesn't make sense. Maybe there isn't finished, ever. Waking up to the world of change could utterly, utterly transform our lives could change how we live. This is the call to all awakened beings. It's the cry for help from our suffering planet. It's the call that was issued to us from the Buddha himself. And so can we take responsibility? Can we wake up? Can we acknowledge our part in creation, our part in suffering, in our participation in evolution. So to end with Joanna Macy. She talks about the turning a lot in her work, in her later work. And so she says, we are ready to return. The movement begins. Having gained distance and sophistication of perception, we can turn and recognize who we have been all along. Now it it can dawn on us. We are our world knowing itself. We are our world knowing itself. We can relinquish our separateness. We can come home again and participate in our world in a richer, more responsible, poignantly beautiful way than before in our infancy. We are our world knowing itself. 
So let's bring ourselves back to our sitting posture and we'll just sit and let that reverberate in us for a while. So we'll sit for a bit. We've actually got about 15 minutes. And towards the end, we'll chant. Um, I'm going to propose that we do the Om Mani Padme Hung chant again, the great chant of compassion. Um, And I completely would be delighted if we have some harmonizers again. So, So let's just sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.